We are going to be now in Luke chapter 13. Um, last week we were um, out in the parking lot. How many of you are glad that it wasn't this week we were out in the parking lot? Yeah, me too. So that just worked out well. Um, so thank you, Lord. Had a fun time. Uh, just did a tailgate, opened it up for a barbecue, and then we uh, worshiped and had this study. And uh, so we covered the last verses of half, half chapter of Luke. So we're going to pick up this week here in chapter 13. And the title is Jesus on Judgment. What does the Lord have to say about judgment? Does he have anything to say? The answer is he has plenty to say. And we're going to look at his teaching and his instruction. But by way of introduction, let me ask this question. Was 9-11 God's, don't answer out loud, was 9-11 God's judgment on this country? Was the earthquake that happened in the uh, uh, pornography center of the world in California years ago, was that judgment of the Lord? When the tsunamis happened, is that judgment? When Hurricane Katrina happened, was that God's judgment on the world? And so I think we can glean some insights from the Lord on how to answer these questions. And really, Jesus has asked a similar type of question as we open up here in chapter 13. So let's begin looking, first of all, verses 1 through 9. He's going to talk about repentance and fruitful living. The question is going to come, and he's going to get to the heart of the matter, which is repentance is needed and fruitful living is how we should be conducting ourselves. But let's read verses uh, uh, beginning at verse 1, it says, There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. We'll stop right there. So we have really no background on these two events. There's no other uh, biblical reference to it. Uh, I am unaware of any other historical reference to it than what we have right here, other than uh, Josephus, a historian, said of the Galileans that these were wicked people that were often given to sedition. So maybe that's why Pilate did what he did when the Galileans came to offer their sacrifices and he included them in those sacrifices. But there's really no other biblical information. But it doesn't matter because how it's dealt with gives us all of the information that we need. But you had the Galilean tragedy of these guys being put to death by Pilate, and then you have the, this tower that fell, and 18 people were killed. And it seems from Jesus' response that the conclusion that they had reached was, these Galileans were worse, that's why it happened, and those that encountered the fall of this tower, they were sinners, and the judgment came upon them. And he says, so you think they're worse than others? Well, no, that's not the case to answer your question, but here's what you really need to be aware of. And he says it twice. You need to repent lest something worse happens to you than lest you likewise perish. So Jesus gets straight to the matter of the need for repentance. 
I think we have to be so careful when we deal with matters like the, the tower that fell in Siloam or when we deal with matters about the Galileans whose blood was mixed together with uh, the sacrifices they made, or the towers that fell in 9, on 9-11, or the Pentagon, or Hurricane Katrina. And so often, now listen, I cannot give you definitive um, answer on this, but I tell you, I think, I think the, the weight of the information we have to look at falls in this way that we ought to be so careful when considering assigning tragedy um, um, that people have endured to God. Because when we do that, we're speaking for the Lord. That's no small matter, is it? It's no small matter to open your mouth and speak about what the Lord has done. And if we're going to open our mouth and we're going to speak about it, we ought to be really certain that we are rightly representing the Lord. And so, the, you know, what was being heard in his day was, oh, the Galileans were terrible, and those that you know, endured the fall of the tower at Siloam, they were terrible sinners. That's why those bad things happened to them. And he says, that's not the case. That's not what's going on. But I think that is a, an often reached conclusion. So let me tell you about one or two experiences. Let's think about 9-11. Let's think about the man that was caught on one of those upper floors and he called his wife and said, listen, there's no way I'm going to get out. I love you, but I want you to pray for people because I am sharing the gospel with them right now. I love you. Goodbye. Do you, do you really want to say that that was the judgment of God? Because if you say that the 9-11 was the judgment of God, then you have to now, not me, because I didn't say it, you now have to deal with why God would judge a man who was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and was preaching the gospel. Why did he judge him? Why did the judgment come? Or, or how about Hurricane Katrina? Some of you um, will remember when we went down to, to do this. That was quite a, uh, a venture in and of itself. I remember when Hurricane Katrina happened, and I'm pretty sure it was on a Saturday morning that I was in just in, you know, just regular devotions and prayer, and the Lord just said, I want you to take a truckload of stuff down to those people that have been affected. I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't know how we're going to do that. And I just I remember, I knew immediately that it was the Lord, because you just, you feel that immediate struggle and sense of the presence of the Lord. Well, long story short, we did that, and I was like, how in the world are we ever going to fill up, you know, where are we going to get a tractor trailer from in the first place? Because it was very specific. Get a semi and fill it up and take it down there. I'm like, where are we going to get this? Well, you know what? We called up a, a local company and they said, if you have somebody that has a, you know, uh, their license to drive this vehicle, we will um, we'll, we'll give you to give it to you for free. So we got it, and then we were like, well, that's a that's a big big container to fill up. Well, we filled it up so much that we were overweight. And um, we, were, and we went through the first you know, way station like, hey, uh, guys, you got a problem. Well, it just had so happened that somebody had said, hey, if you run into any problem, call this guy. Call um, this guy because he works with Senator uh, Cornyn. And if you run into any difficult, we'll, we'll work it out. Oh, and by the way, here's a letter just to take from his office in case you run into trouble. And so we pulled it out said, uh, sorry, here's the letter. He's like, all right, you guys need to, you know, be careful. You're way overloaded. So we, we ended up getting a tractor trailer, and then we went and rented a 25-foot 
uh, their vehicle, box truck, and we took all this stuff down there, and um, we didn't know where we were going. We didn't know who we were taking it to. We just were going. So we got down there, and we got into a place, and we saw a church, so we went up to it, and we said, you know, hey, we've got all this stuff. Do you guys want it? And they said, well, are you guys the ones that are supposed to be bringing us stuff? I'm like, I don't think we're those people, but we were told to come. And um, he goes, well, he goes, those people never showed up with this stuff, so go ahead. And so we, they had a whole outreach planned, and um, so we dropped off all that stuff and walked away. But everywhere we went, this was one of the only churches down in, I think we were down in Gulfport, that we saw that wasn't destroyed. Everywhere we looked, we saw churches that were ripped apart, and the roofs were off, no services, no services, no services. So my question is, if Hurricane Katrina was the judgment of God, why did he do that to the churches that were preaching the gospel? I mean, I, I don't know how to answer that question. So if you are right that those were the judgments of God, then I need to understand how come God was judging a guy on a top floor of the Twin Towers preaching the gospel. I, I need to know why he ripped churches apart. Or were these just like natural disasters? Were these the wicked acts of evil men? And in the midst of that, there were righteous and unrighteous people that endured these acts. Because it, it, it's either that or it's God that did this. And if it's God who did it, then turn with me over to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. You're familiar with this because we studied it not so long ago, but it's when God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And then Abraham gets very concerned for Lot and his family, and he goes to the Lord and begins to intercede on behalf of Lot and his family. Well, actually, let's pick up at verse 23. And Abraham came near and said, would you destroy the righteous, chapter 18, verse 23, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy that place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. You shall not, ju shall, shall not the judge of all the earth do right, so the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for this sake, for their sakes. We could go over into 1 Thessalonians chapter, um, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we find that we are not appointed to judgment. We are not to, appointed to wrath, but to salvation. So in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is this principle that is laid down that God does not destroy the wicked, and the righteous together in judgment. So I would say that we have a really good passage here in front of us in Luke chapter 13 to look at these things. Listen, it, it's easy to reach the conclusion, oh, judgment's going to happen. Well, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. So maybe we should start looking there first. But I, I, I think we must be so careful that when we see these types of things, that we immediately assign them to the Lord. And if you're going to assign them to the Lord, you better be ready to ask, answer those questions. Well, then why did God judge my husband that was on one of those floors preaching the gospel and was a faithful follower of Jesus? If that was a judgment of God, you tell me why God judged my husband. Or say to the churches, 
who have been ripped apart. Why did God judge us? You've got to answer that question if you're going to say it's the judgment of God. Now, you might be fully convinced that it is the judgment of God, then you better be prepared to answer that. I don't know how to answer that because of these other verses. So Jesus takes on the hard question, but he doesn't really hang out there very long, does he? He has something else he wants to say. (laughs) What is it that he wants to say? Uh, You want to talk about judgment? Here, let's talk about judgment. You need to repent. You need to take care. You need to mind your own heart. You need to look at yourself and make certain that you are ready to stand before the Lord. So he gives a warning of trouble that could come unless they turned from the Lord. So he disagreed with them about the cause of these people's death as being worse sinners. But he sees the moment to say, but let's do talk about repentance and judgment Albert Barnes writes of Jesus in this circumstance. He says, He never suffered a subtle, uh, excuse me, He never suffered a suitable occasion to pass without warning the wicked and entreating them to forsake their evil ways. The subject of religion, and he uses that in a positive sense, the subject of religion was always present to his mind. He introduced it easily, freely, fully. And this he showed his love for the souls of people. And in this, he set us an example that we should walk in his steps. Our Lord and our Savior loved people too much to not speak about the need for repentance in their life. Lest they would experience judgment. The payment for not not repenting is so high that Jesus could not be silent. He understood fully those that reject him. And we are in the midst of a a section of scripture where we're reading about Israel rejecting the kingdom of God that had been offered to him, uh, to, to the nation of Israel. We got a lot of that last week. We'll get some more of it this week. And so he's like, he's got to talk about it. He's got to call them to repentance. Because if the nation of Israel is going to say, we don't want you, Jesus. We don't want you as our Messiah. They have no hope. And they will have to deal with the consequences of their sin. And so he was not afraid. And I'll say something that probably will cause us all to sit up and think a little bit. You can think about it, talk about it. I think our silence, our silence is often nothing more than self-love when it comes to topics like this. I think we can overstep it and say, oh, it's a judgment of God and where we come off as these angry people that aren't able to give explanations to hard questions when we say, well, why would God rip churches apart? You know, and then we say, well, we can have zero information. Well, they were probably bad churches. And we just go to that. And I think people hear that like, no, 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 no. I think it's easy to go there or it's easy to be silent and say nothing. But really what we need to do is we need to make certain that we're speaking because our silence is often nothing more than self-love. We don't want to deal with the negative consequences of speaking the truth. Negative consequences, Yes. Go try and call a few people to repentance tomorrow and find out what the response is going to be. The next time something comes up, current events, you know, the Tower of Siloam, the Galileans, these sound like headlines in the newspaper, don't they? The Galileans' blood who was mingled with their sacrifices and you're at the water cooler, you're on a conversation and people bring up those local things and, and begin to look for a way to talk and bring in the kingdom. And so the Lord is speaking, and yet if we bring it up, 
you know, that people need to repent. They need to make sure they're ready to stand with the Lord. We can immediately begin to be attacked as being bigots and people that hate and trying to control people's lives. And we know that the, the, you know, the family mill's never going to go well. We know that relationships with those people may begin to drop off. It's like, I don't want to mess up those relationships. I just want to have good relationships, so I'm going to be silent. And that is the self-love element that I'm talking about. We'd rather have peace in the short term, then be in that place of begging people to come to have peace with God in the long term. For Jesus, he knew where the priorities were. And so he calls him to that place. Look at verses 6 through 9. He also spoke this parable. So in the context of what we just talked about with the pool of uh, the Tower of Siloam, he speaks this parable. He says, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. So there's a warning about unfruitfulness. There's, a, there's a, the call to repentance that I would look at my life and I would see if there are things that are offensive in my life to God. I'm not walking in obedience to him. Then I repent. I turn from those things and I come to the Lord. But also in my life, it's not just a matter of repenting. It's also, which is kind of like a, a negative thing, right? I've, if I'm repenting, that's negative in the sense that I'm doing something wrong and I've got to change course. But on the positive side of how we live our lives, there should be fruit. There should be something that the Lord could come to our life and enjoy. Remember, what is the only negative miracle that we read of Jesus doing? Anybody know? He, what? Curses a fig tree. And here we have a fig tree again. The fig tree is a type of the nation of Israel. And he is come into their midst, and he's looking for fruit. He's looking for, you know, is there something that's going to be pleasant to, to take from them? And yet the Lord is with Israel for not one year or two years, but for three years and full in the ministry years, and he doesn't find anything. This is why when he looks at that fig tree right before he goes to the cross and he doesn't see any fruit, he curses it and it withers and it dies. What's that? The Lord expects from Israel that they would have had fruit in their life. But the Lord also expects from our lives, the church of Jesus Christ, and your life individually, and your family, that there would be fruit that comes from your life. Those good, um, good character, good actions, good behavior. John chapter 15, verse 1 we read this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that, bear, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do what? You can't get anything accomplished. 
that's of eternal value unless you're drawing your strength and your resources from me. So that's some good news because you may be looking at your life and like, man, my life is fruitless. You know, I don't have, as it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And let's just leave that up there for a moment. And as you look at this, I don't see that fruit in my life. I actually see the, the opposite of that in my life. What, what does that mean about me? It means one of two things. Either you are not saved and you've never had a transformation in your life and you've connected to the, uh, to the vine that pushes nourishment to the branches, us, that the fruit might come from the branches, or, or you have had that experience, but you are a branch that is not receiving the flow of nourishment into your life. What are the types of things that cut off that supply? Well, how about just not spending time? What about not spending time with the Lord in prayer and in the word? And in meditation, what about allowing um, outside influences to come in that begin to cause disease in your life, that begin to eat away at your, your life as a Christian? Sin begins to come in. And this will, this will cut out your fruitfulness. Now the problem is, and listen to this, you can cut off a branch that has fruit on it and it can still go on for a little while, can't it? I mean, it can still ripen a little bit and it can still look okay. You cut off a branch and you, you put that on the table. Immediately, if you were to do that, nobody's going to look and say, look at that terrible fruit. But you're not going to get any more fruit. That which has already been produced will be there. But we know that the process is a waiting one, right? Pretty soon that stuff's going to be no good that's on that branch and it will never produce. So if you get disconnected from uh, the, the vine, Jesus, you're not walking in fellowship with him. There's not going to be fruit. But here's a great thing. All you have to do is what? Reconnect. Go reconnect with Jesus. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in the word. And you will find that that fruit will be there. And it's a process that the Lord does in your life and in my life. So you can have a confidence that God will work in your life and through your life and he will produce this. I don't know. I don't think he's so interested in my life having fruit. I don't think he cares about me that much. Well, first of all, he does care about you that much. But newsflash, the fruit is not for your glory. The fruit is for whose glory? It's for the Lord's glory. And this is a beautiful thing. God is glorified in that you bear much fruit. This is not an issue about your success as a believer. This is an issue about the glory of, the, of God. And so when we walk with the Lord and we stay connected with him in fellowship and, and the word and in obedience, now he can produce this fruit. And it is not a struggle. It is not some arduous journey that you're on every day just trying to be a little more patient. Because if you're doing that, you're trying to draw your strength from your own self-will rather than just drawing strength from the vine, from Jesus. Lord, produce in me that fruit. Okay, then abide in me. Remain in me. Stay connected with me. Well, I used to be really connected with you. Okay, so you've cut the branch off and you just have it laying on the table and you're wondering why the fruit 
is not what it used to be. you got to go get connected again. And he will naturally produce that spiritual fruit in your life. It is his work. What, what do we see there in Galatians? What is it? Oh, the first words, but the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say, but the fruit of Troy. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit. This is what he will produce in your life when you and myself, when we stay connected. Have you ever walked through the apple orchard and heard the trees grunting and straining? You've never heard that. They do it effortlessly. We don't see that struggle. We don't see some arduous problem. As long as the branches stay connected and it's in good ground, then it's all right. Well, hey, we the branches are connected to a really good trunk. Jesus, he supplies everything you need. And so when you stay connected with him, this is going to come from your life. But you can look and evaluate and say, I don't see the fruit that I want to see in my life. Oh, what do I need to do to make it better? I know what I just need to make, you know, 10 rules that will help me. No, you don't. You need to get connected with Jesus Christ and enjoy him and fellowship with him. Have those daily devotions. And, and let me do something. Let me liberate you from the guilt of missing a day of your daily devotions. I think we should meet with the Lord. Obviously, we should, every day should be seeking to meet with him. I would also recommend in your marriage to every day have good communication with your spouse. But guess what? That doesn't happen every day. And it doesn't mean that we're divorced. It doesn't mean we have a bad relationship. Circumstances happen. And so I'm not saying don't have a quiet time. I'm just saying if you're one that's like, well, I've got to have my quiet times and I go good until I miss a day or two or maybe it's even a week and then I feel so guilty. It's like it's not even worth it. I've got to start all over. Be liberated from that. This is, this is meeting with Jesus that we're talking about. This is a relationship with him. So have a plan. Have a place to meet with the Lord. And when it doesn't happen, don't beat yourself up. To the place where you're so condemned, now you don't even meet with the Lord. Jesus is like, what are you doing? I'm not, I'm not the one yelling at you right now. We're okay. I understand. You had a super busy day. Here's a news flash for you. <laughs> so from behind the scenes of Troy's desk, I hardly got to study today. I was at the hospital until 6.30 in the morning with my dad. I woke up at 12.30 and then had to deal with all of the things that happened from being at the hospital all that time. So I hardly had any time to study. And, and my plan was good. I had, I had the day separated. I had no counseling appointments. I had, it was Troy Warner marked off to, to meet with the Lord and just seek his face. But that didn't, it didn't go that way. The good thing is, last week... I got confused on what passage I was supposed to teach. So the first, for about a day and a half, I studied um, Luke chapter 13. And then at some point I'm like, wait, this, I haven't finished Luke chapter 12. So then I had to hurry up and go back to Luke chapter 12 and get that study done for last Wednesday night. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the way the last two Wednesday nights of studies have gone. But you know what? I don't feel guilty standing in front of you like I'm a terrible person that hasn't rightly divided the word of truth. I have on the front of my Bible, 2 Timothy 2.15. The workman doesn't need to be ashamed, right? Uh, but needs to rightly divide the word of God. He knows that. 
It's not like I was goofing off or doing something sinful. Those are my circumstances. So I don't stand up here feeling condemned in front of you tonight. I just crying out for more grace, Lord, help. And if that can be true for me and my circumstances, can that be true for you? As you walk with Jesus, don't, don't make the sum total of your walk with Jesus, whether or not you can check the box that you read or prayed that morning, because that is not your relationship with Jesus. That can be a sign of how you're meeting with the Lord, but that's not your walk with Jesus. And so if you look and you don't see enough check boxes to satisfy your conscience, I'm just saying, start tomorrow, <laughs> okay? Start over tomorrow. Start a fresh meeting with Jesus. And don't walk in condemnation. And if you've heard me say that it's not important to have a quiet time, you didn't hear what I said, so go get the, the download of this and listen again. I'm just saying don't be so condemned that you stop meeting with Jesus because I know that's what happens. Like, I'm no, I'm no good. Just go get connected with Jesus again. Go spend some time with him and allow that nourishment that comes into your life, that flow of the Spirit that comes in, he will produce these things in your life. Amen? So fruitful living won't save you. Only those who have been redeemed can produce fruit. We're not talking about a salvation issue here. Well, if I don't have fruit, then I'm not going to be saved. Nah, you, you're saved because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and the fruit will come because you are redeemed and because you abide with the Lord. Let's keep on moving. Verses 10 through 21. Beware of those who seek to corrupt. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, was bent over, and then could no way raise herself up. I mean, she's staring at the ground wherever she goes. 18 years. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you're healed. You are loosed from your infirmity. Now, he could have just said you're healed, but he uses the word loosed because it's going to come back in just a moment in a very significant way. The word loosed. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But Mr. Eeyore, the ruler of the synagogue, answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered, said, I realize you kind of are a little confused in your theology, and I'd just like to sit down with you and have a cup of coffee and help you come to a better understanding, brother. No, that's not what he says. What does he say? One word. Hypocrite. Just nails the dude right between the eyes. You hypocrite. You're quoting scripture, and you think you, you've got it right. You're a hypocrite. Does not... Each one of you on the Sabbath, loose his ox. See the word coming in? Loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath? 
And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Don't you love Jesus? I mean, you, know, you never find Jesus speaking to a sinner like that. I challenge you. You've got four Gospels, go through it, and try and find Jesus talking to sinners like that. He talks to the leaders, to re- people who ought to know better, people who are uh, religious. He speaks to them and rebukes them in this way. And, and so I think sometimes we begin to speak to the world like we're talking to one another when there's grave sin in our life. Listen, we are to rebuke one another, but we are to call the world to repentance. I mean, are we really surprised that the world is acting worldly? <laughs> are you really shocked that our country is acting sinful? Where have you been? Why are you surprised by this? This should not shock any of us that our world is becoming more and more sinful. Have you not read that the Apostle Paul said that it's going to, things are going to get worse and what? Worse. He doesn't say they're going to get better and better. He says they're going to get worse and worse. Why are we surprised that a Christ-rejecting world is living sinful lives? Call them to the beauty of repentance. Show them the goodness of the Lord, because that's what leads to repentance. But boy, when you're talking about people who name the name of the Lord and are manipulating Scripture and are driving people away from Jesus in a relationship with God, that's when Jesus unloads on them. That's when he turns the tables. He's not turning the tables on the sinners. It's on those who ought to know better and were hypocrites. So he says, um, you are loosed, and then he knows what's going to happen. He gets rebuked, and he says, okay, um, do you not loose your donkey to go take it to water on the Sabbath? And what, you can just see all their heads go, Boop. Somebody else is now bowed down, not looking up. They're ashamed. And they're probably ashamed. I mean, I, I, would, I wish we had a little more information. What are they ashamed of? Are they ashamed of the way they treated this woman? Are they ashamed of the fact that they just got showed up by Jesus? I mean, it's hard to say, but I mean, collectively, we know that it, the end result is they were ashamed that they were showed up by Jesus. Now, maybe this one ruler of the synagogue has a change of heart. Maybe he does. Um, and he gets it right. And the shame was a healthy one. But so often, these guys are it's all about appearance. And so the Lord rebukes them. And they had forgotten that God's word was put in place to be a blessing to God's people. The commandments are not there to be a burden to you. So it says in 1 John. They're not burdensome. These are the, it's our joy to be able to do it. If you have a, a view of obeying Scripture and following the commandments of the Lord in a super negative light, I encourage you to go read Psalm 119 tonight. And Psalm 119 will give you the proper perspective, gives me the proper perspective I ought to have towards interacting with the Word of God. And it's meant to be a blessing to us. The commandments are not meant to ruin your life and to be a joy killer in your life. The commandments are meant to be a protection and a blessing to you. These guys had missed that point, And they use it as a battering ram to 
you know, oppress people. This woman bound for 18 years, and the first thing that comes in your mind is to rebuke her in Jesus? I love the way it's written there in verse 16. It says, So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound, think of it. I mean, ponder this for a second, you guys. You got your road answers. I want you to just think about it. She was bound, and now she's free. That doesn't touch your heart. You, you are willing to loose your oxen, but you're not willing to see God loose this woman. And so, quite a, a hard heart. So, beware of those who seek to corrupt. It's what we're talking about. Look at verse 18. Moving on, it says, Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, so a super tiny seed, which a man took and put in his garden. And it grew and became a large tree. That's not supposed to happen with mustard seeds. They're bushes. It says, And the birds of the air nested in its branches. And, be, and he again said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. So Jesus is talking about the corruption that is there. And, and, I mean, in this context, it means they're at the synagogue. He's just rebuked these guys. What's the corruption? It's the corruption is these men who are not leading people to the Lord, but are driving them away from the Lord. And he says, you are like a bird, an unwelcomed bird that is lodged in the nest, excuse me, in the, the branches of the kingdom of God. You are like men who are like leaven that's put into a, uh, uh, the dough, and it causes a putrefaction and causes it to, to spread throughout. You're dangerous. You are against the, the things of the kingdom. And so we should never be surprised. Of course, I mean, we want to expect that the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, in any form, in any shape, is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a righteous thing. But we shouldn't be surprised when we see corruption in the midst of the tree. We shouldn't be surprised when we see corruption in the midst of the dough. I can't believe this is going on. I just don't know if I can even have anything else to do with the church because I'm just so shocked by this. Why are you shocked? Have you not read that Jesus said this is going to happen? He's telling us right now the kingdom of God is it's a good and beautiful thing like a, 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 a mustard plant. This is a good thing. But there are birds that are going to come and they're going to lodge in it. Now, we talked about birds, right, in the parable of the sower and the seed. And it was the bird that came and snatched up the seed and took it away that was upon the stony ground. And the Lord said that bird represents Satan. So this is not a good thing to be called a bird. Now, obviously the Holy Spirit is likened as a dove, right, that descended upon the Lord. So you can't say that every time in Scripture a bird is bad, but boy, when you're looking at the parables, you ought to look very closely and evaluate. So the birds are not good. They're, they're evil, and they come, and they do corrupt things. They do bad things. So if you see it, if you happen to see a bird in the branches or recognize that there is leaven that has made its way into the church of Jesus Christ, the response is, yeah, Jesus is a true prophet. I don't think we need to rejoice over the bird or the leaven, but at least we can step back and say, Jesus was right. 
wicked people have found their way in and they corrupt it. And you know, they can come and they can begin to put a heavy load and a heavy burden upon people. And you've got to keep all these commandments. You've got to dress like this and you've got to go and do it this way. And you've got to lift your hands when you worship Jesus like that. And you've got to read this version of the Bible. And they go through their long list of the things that you have to do to be right with God. And in, in many ways, we can begin to load people down with a burden so heavy, we can't keep it, nor can they. But you know what legalists love to do? The legalists love to take something that is spiritual, and they love to make it physical. And I have this theory, the reason they like to do that, or even when I begin to tend that way, it's because it's much easier to decide how long my hair should be than to deal with my thoughts in my heart or bitterness. It's a lot easier to go and just get a nice haircut. I, I mean, honestly, I mean, in some ways, if all I had to do was, you know, get a haircut and wear a three-piece suit and make sure I only read from a really large King James version of the Bible and that arrived me at perfect holiness, I'm doing it, okay? I'm all in for that if that was what the Word of God says. But that's not what the Word of God says. Holiness is something that's being worked out in my heart, in my thoughts, in my attitudes towards people, towards God. And so, so often, people who are legalistic and, put, legalistic and putting a heavy trip on, on others and say, you've got to walk like this and dress like this and go to church at this time and do this and do this. You know why they do that? Because they can't control anything else in their heart or their mind in their walk with God. So they've relegated it to physical things. That's the truth. But that should not surprise us that it happens. But that's one side of the, you know, the bird, right? That's one type of bird. That's one type of leaven. But there's, there's a bird that's on the other end of the spectrum, and there's leaven that's on the other end of the spectrum that uses the grace of God as a cloak for ungodliness. It doesn't matter how you live. You can have your hair whatever color you want. You can have whatever kind of, you know, uh, Thoughts you want to have. You can have any kind. You can steal. You can thieve. You can be sexually immoral. And it doesn't matter because God's grace covers it all. Don't worry, bro. Just, you know, just live it up. Because, you know, God is going to forgive you anyways. Where, you know, sin abounds. Grace abounds much more. And so that's another type of bird that hangs out in the trees. And that should not surprise us at all either. This, this is exactly what the epistles deal with. Galatians deals with the legalistic bird. Jude deals with the bird that wants to tell you to go live in sin and that it's okay. But Jesus said, that's what it's going to be like. Now, and this would have been a stinging rebuke in that they're in the context of that synagogue. Look at verse 22 down to verse 30. And Jesus calls us to strive to enter the narrow gate. And he went through the cities and villages, so he's moved on, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? I mean, like, wow. I mean, everything you just said. I mean, like, when we start to think about the things you've said and the way that people are acting, and, and you're, the people are not accepting you as the king of this kingdom, I mean, are only a few people? And you can almost hear the sorrow in their heart. Because who doesn't want to see a revival, right? We pray for revivals. We desire, does it, what do you mean like to see a revival before the Lord comes back or you go to see him? I would love to see an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon 
this church, this town, this, this country, and this world. I would love to see an outpouring of the Spirit of God. I think we see a measure of God's Spirit working and moving in our midst that we can be so thankful for, but where it just is an overflow that it affects the society, our towns, our neighborhoods, and things begin to change. I would love to see that. And I think that's kind of the heart that they have. Is it just going to be a few? Because they want to see the, the, the nation turn. Verse 20, um, 24, Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you. And where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. You're going to have Gentiles who are going to come from all over the world. And they're going to sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are, uh, the, there are last who will be first. And there are first who will be last. So Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be just a few. But you strive to enter. This is the Greek word agonizomai. It's where we get our, our English word agony from. It speaks of a striving. It's, it's a picture of an athlete that's running hard in the Olympic Games and is trying to win. They are agonizing in physical effort to do their very best. And so that's the word that he's used. It's an imperative, meaning it's a commandment. Strive, not a suggestion. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. And so he says, yeah, you guys are right. There's not going to be a lot of people. It's going to be a few. But you, you need to make certain that you're, you're paying attention. Now he uses a, a, a picture of a master who refuses to allow people to come in. And he calls them sinners and he tells them to depart. And he gives that scene of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and, and the prophets, and they're all gathered together, and you can see people almost looking on at the feast. And they're looking on at this amazing event that's taking place in the kingdom that was promised to uh, the prophets is being established, and they're all there, and they're all gathered together, and yet there's going to be those that are looking on and saying, but I want to come in. It's like, no, 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 you don't get to come in. I never knew you. You're a, ner you're a worker of iniquity. And so basically Jesus is saying, yeah, that's the case. Many in our nation, guys, are not going to come to faith. And of course, we know how the story ended, right? Jesus died. He was rejected. And then the followers of Christ began to be rejected. They began to be persecuted, began to be put to death. And that's exactly what took place. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, picking up on this, this, the word strive again, Paul writes, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. 
Now they do, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, and not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who's just swinging wildly in the air, not one who beats the air. So Paul picks up that theme. We must be careful how we walk and how we live our lives. It's not just, you, just carelessness and not paying attention to the teachings of Christ and rejecting him, and that's going to be okay. No, it's not going to be okay. Or Philippians 2.16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. We need to run wisely. We need to run carefully. As it says in Corinthians, we need to, to run with a certainty about us. We have a plan for how we're going to walk with Jesus. We have a, a way in which we approach him. We have those healthy habits of a relationship that allow it to be built up and strengthened. Or Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So strive. Now here's the interesting thing. We don't like that word. Strive because it's like, wait a minute, you know, we're saved, um, you know, through uh, uh, by the grace of God through faith. I put faith in the Lord, that faith reaches out and grabs hold of the grace of God that was manifested and in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and I receive salvation. There's no me in it, there's no me. I just, I just believe, and even the belief that I have is a gift from the Lord. So, why strive? And I, I think this verse I think answers this question probably better than any other verse. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. And Paul writes this. It says, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. I mean, it's such a beautiful balance of it all. Oh, there's a striving, but I'm striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And so the word there in verse 29 of Colossians 1, striving, yeah, agonizomai. And um, where it says works in me mightily, mightily, it's the, that word dunamis, power, that we read of in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So that God wants to put his power in our life. But we, we must strive, but we don't strive in our own strength. We strive in the, the working and the power of the Spirit of God in our life. And so I would say, write it down, circle it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. You lay it all out on the line, but you realize it's God that's really working in you to get you across the finish line. And, you know, we, we have a free will. We can do what we want. We can choose to walk carelessly and just beat at the air and not be temperate in all things. And we can pick up all kinds of weights and all kinds of sin and we can become ensnared and so that you make almost no progress. And so we must be mindful. Let's wrap it up here. Verse 31 through verse 35. We see that Israel is going to have coming trouble and deliverance. And it's all going to happen in Jerusalem. So Israel's coming trouble and deliverance at Jerusalem. The trouble has already come historically. The deliverance is still yet to come. Let's read together. 
On that very day, some of the Pharisees came to him saying, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Okay, suspicious already. You guys have dogged Jesus' entire ministry, and now you want to give him helpful advice? And he said to them, Go tell that fox. (laughs) Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. I mean, he knows, he knows what they're up to. It's them. They're the ones that are trying to keep him away from there. And he says, I'm going to perish, but I'm not going to do it outside of Jerusalem. I know what you guys are up to, but it's going to happen in Jerusalem. So verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Please underline this. But you were not willing. But you were not willing. We have two truths in Scripture. The sovereignty of God. That nobody comes to the Lord unless the Lord draws them. We don't initiate salvation. God initiates it. And here we have another truth that man must respond to the sovereign love and grace of God. Now some, our dear Calvinist brothers, would say, no, 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 that's not true. And then on the other side, our Arminian brothers would say, no, 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 it's it's, it's, it's all man. But I think what we need to look and see is that God is sovereign and he draws all people. And under that umbrella of sovereignty, he gives man the capacity to make a choice. It is not outside of the sovereignty of God. It is underneath the sovereignty of God. And I know of no other way, and I think it's actually a really good way to look at this whole thing, of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And we see it here. God in his sovereignty is drawing them to himself, but they in their free will are rejecting him. And Jesus places a responsibility for their rejection on their doorstep. And I think the same happens today. The Spirit of God sovereignly draws people to himself, but some are not willing to come that they might have life. And that's exactly what they do. They were not willing to come. And and they had all their reasons. You know, he healed on the Sabbath. (laughs) That was one of the reasons. But I think the biggest reason was he got all of the attention And they wanted that attention. And so they rejected him. Verse 35, see, your house is left desolate to you. So now he's prophesying. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a pretty important phrase right there. Your house is going to be desolate, but, 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 You shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Fast forward in your thinking a little bit. Palm Sunday. What were they saying on Palm Sunday? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that was just his disciples that said that. The whole city was stirred up about it, but it was just his disciples. So their house is going to be left desolate. We know what's going to take place. Uh, uh, Israel is going to be destroyed. Um, by Rome, um, by, you know, not one stone will be left upon another, and then they're, it's a complete destruction, and they're scattered throughout the empire. But Zechariah 12.10 says this. It's a prophetic passage. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. 
Then they will look on me, whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for firstborn. A time is going to come in the nation of Israel when a spirit of grace and supplication will be poured out upon them. Their eyes are going to be opened and they're going to see Jesus as their Messiah. It's going to happen at the end of the tribulation when they're about to be destroyed and wiped out by the Antichrist. And you know what they're going to do when they come and this grace is upon them? You know what they're going to say? They're going to say, Hosanna. Save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is the one who comes in the name of the Lord? It's Jesus. They're going to be calling for Jesus to come and to rescue them and to save them. That's all they had to do in his first coming. But instead, they were not willing. They rejected him. See, Israel's going to have to make a confession. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, which contextually is talking about them. But it's a confession that we have made as well. They're going to have to make that confession that Jesus is Lord. And when they do that, they're going to say to the Lord, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save now. And the Lord is going to burst through the clouds on a white horse and he will come and he will rescue the nation of Israel and all Israel will be saved because they've confessed and they've seen Jesus and they are now saying, you're our Lord, you're Savior, come save us. How long did it take for Jesus to save you when you said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? When you called out and said, save now. When you confessed with your mouth and you believed in your heart, how long did it take for Jesus to save you? It happened. While it was still in your mouth, salvation took place. And I believe that same, the same is going to be the case is that when Israel nationally comes to the place where they make this confession that Jesus says, you're going to make it. He says, until the time, right? It's going to come. And when they make that confession, then the Lord is going to come back and he's going to immediately save them. We just so happen to know the timing of that. It's going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and that is the second coming of Christ. Because Israel will finally confess what he had tried to bring them to through his entire ministry. So Jesus has some things to say on judgment. Israel was going to be judged. It happened in 64 AD. Um, and then they're going to be saved from judgment when they call upon him. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us. Lord, repentance. Lord, we are so glad that you have led us in repentance. We are so glad that you brought us to that place where we were broken over the way we were living and called upon you. Lord, we hear your words tonight. We see the priority of that brokenness.